I'd ask if you could please stand with me in a reverence for the word of our Lord as we, can, as we read the passage of Scripture um, this morning. Just a few verses here in Luke 18. Again, continuing our study in the Gospel according to Luke. Luke 18, verses 31 to 34. Luke 18, 31 to 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and it did not grasp what was said. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, we believe in the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish what you have ordained to accomplish through the proclamation of your word. And we praise you, Lord, especially for the Lord Jesus Christ, the word become flesh. And we pray this morning, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to see Christ, magnify Christ in our hearts. Lord, help me to do what I am powerless to do, to, to lift up the name of Christ so that you will draw men and women to yourself. Lord, may you help us to see who Christ is in the fullness of his threefold office for our salvation. for the exaltation and glorification of the triune God. Do this, I pray, in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. The other morning, as I was walking to the dog, walking the dog, I was listening to, uh, to Al Mohler and the briefing, as Jane calls it, the griefing, because when I get home after walking the dog and listening to it, I'm often wound up because of what's going on in the world. And this time Mueller let off as with the usual bad news, but then he finished with his, his third story. It was different. He said, that, he said that, that this was the 20th anniversary of the hymn In Christ Alone, which in my opinion is one of the best modern hymns that we have in the Western church. And this, this glorious hymn proclaims our hope as it walks us through the ministry of Christ for our salvation from his, from his incarnation to his crucifixion to his resurrection and his return. And Moore explained how the liberal Presbyterian Church USA was compiling a new hymnal and, and they, they wanted to use in Christ alone in their new hymnal. And so they approached the authors, Stuart Townend and Keith Getty, and asked permission to use In Christ Alone. However, the, the PC USA wanted to include the hymn on the condition that one of the lines be changed. They wanted to replace 
till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied with till on the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, at first glance, there might not be anything wrong with that. Because it's true. The love of God is manifested in the death of Jesus on the cross. All of the attributes of God are most powerfully proclaimed in and revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ through the cross. However, by making such a change, you need to ask what is being lost and what is being said. What is the motivation for this liberal church to change the lyrics of this hymn. You see, the wrath of God poured out on Jesus in our place is central to the meaning of the cross. But liberal theologians don't like the cross and they don't like the atonement. They want a God that they are more comfortable with, a God who who isn't quite so holy, a God who isn't really a judge. You know, years ago, Robert Schuller did that with, with nothing but the blood. He, he tried to change it to nothing but the love of Jesus. Now, it's true. It's, we have the love of, of Jesus is very important. But you can't have or understand the love of Jesus with the cross of Jesus. And so while in one sense it might not be exactly wrong to say that it's true, the love of Jesus is magnified in the cross, but that is not central It is the cross that is central to the gospel. H.R. Niebuhr declared that liberalism proclaims and worships a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And Townend and Getty said no. They would not allow the change. So that PC USA hymnal does not include the hymn in Christ alone. Listen, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for our sins is central to the gospel. Any preaching that does not include the gospel as central, not just an add-on, but central is sub-Christian. Any hymn that does not magnify the gospel, what it means is sub-Christian. The substitutionary death of Christ for our sins is central to the gospel, and so is his life. It is the death and the life of Christ, the death that he lived up to the cross and the death that he lived after the cross. You need it all for the gospel. We need to proclaim and worship a God who saved us through the ministry of Jesus Christ. From his birth until his return, Jesus Christ fulfills, as we talked about with the children, the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. This morning, as we look at Luke 18, 31 to 34, we're going to see how Christ's life and death and life are in the fulfillment of his threefold office. Again, a prophet, priest, and king. We need to preach the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the return of Christ to ourselves, and we need to preach these things to anyone else who will listen. Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on human flesh and lived a perfect life 
of loving obedience to his heavenly Father and perfect selfless love to men and to women. His love to the Father and his bride culminated in his death where he became the sin bearer, bearing the guilt of all the sins that we would ever commit, past, present, and future. The Father poured out his wrath on Christ in our place on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And after a 40-day ministry, he ascended back to the Father, where he now sits enthroned and lives to make intercession for the saints. This is the threefold office of Christ. And one day, he's going to return to take us to be with him forever. Now, in case you, you aren't familiar with what's meant by Christ's threefold office, maybe the first time you really heard it was in, when talking here about the, with the children. Let me read to you briefly from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 8, paragraph 9. This office of mediator between God and humanity is appropriate for Christ alone, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. The office may not be transferred from him to anyone else, either in whole or in part. So let's, let's just tease that out a little bit as we, initially as we look at a couple of, of catechisms that, that will really help you to, to understand these things. And, and, and again, I, I would commend these, I've talked about this before, but I commend these catechisms to you as a way to, to remind yourself and to teach your children of really of central truths of doctrine. So it's question 26 of the 1693 Baptist Catechism. Ask the question, what offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Answer, Christ as our Redeemer executeth the offices of prophet, priest, and king both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And then the catechism goes on to, to develop this with a, with a series of five more questions. I wanna, I'm going to look at a, a few of them as we, as we go on later on. Another catechism, the, the 1563 Heidelberg Catechism, question 31, really sums up the Christ's threefold office like this. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance, our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and he continually pleads our cause with the Father, and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom that he has won for us. So again, these three cate these, these catechisms, in addition to these others, the um, Hercules Collins Orthodox Catechism, which is a, which is a Baptist version of, of Heidelberg, are, are very, very helpful in, in helping you to crystallize these, these really important doctrinal truths. So again, you can see the summary. Jesus Christ is anointed as, as a prophet, our chief teacher who reveals to us the will and word of God, as our high priest whose sacrifice of his own body purchased our redemption and who still intercedes for us before the throne of God. And as our king who reigns over us and protects us in the victory that he has accomplished for us. Again, you can see the, the, the key elements of each of the threefold offices of Christ's ministry right here in our passage this morning. Another key text is, is Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. I'd invite you to turn with me there, please. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, hear this, in, the, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He goes on to talk about, the writer goes on to talk about the superiority of Christ even over angels. So again, the threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. And as you've been looking here in, in Luke 18, over the past several sermons, uh, I've been seeking to show how in this section here from the beginning of chapter 18 to halfway through chapter 19, Christ is teaching about who will enter the kingdom of God and how. And on the one side, you have a, a widow and a tax collector and children and a blind beggar and another tax collector. And Jesus presents these people as the types of people who display faith and humility and enter the kingdom of God. And on the other side, you have the Pharisee in the parable and the rich young ruler. And they represent the, the self-righteous and the self-reliant who are excluded from the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus taught how difficult it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle in Luke 18, 24, and 25, he said it's, 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 it's impossible for a, a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye. Uh, it's impossible by his own strength for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle. And then so those who are listening said, well, well then who can be saved? And Jesus replies, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And I explained that last week that, that God provides the power for salvation. And God also paid the cost for salvation. He supplies the power through the work of the Holy Spirit, applying the work of Christ to our hearts. And he paid the cost in sending his son to die for our sins. God, God provides the power and God provides the cost for our salvation. So here in Luke 18, 31 to 34, we're going to see the work of Christ for your salvation in the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. If you remember our last sermon, I, well, the, two weeks ago, I talked about entering the kingdom as a child. And last week about entering the kingdom at any cost. And then this week, it's enter the kingdom through Christ, our prophet, priest, and and king. So first of all then, let's look at Christ our prophet. In verse 31, Jesus sets the 12, his, his core band of disciples, apart for a private lesson. And he begins saying, see or, or behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. Now we saw back at the, the beginning of the, the, uh, the, the central section of, of Luke that started back in in Luke 9, 51, that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. And our passage this morning takes place as Jesus is, is, is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. We'll see in, uh, in Luke 19, 27, that Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem in the, the triumphal entry. It's a year has passed since Jesus set 
his face towards Jerusalem. And, and, and now, we are, now here we are a year later. He had, he'd begun in northern Galilee, but he's taken a year to get here. Even though really, even accounting for the bypassing of Samaria, it, it was only a six-day journey. But Jesus has taken this whole year because he wants to minister to people and he wants to teach his disciples to prepare them for his departure, that they will continue the ministry, his ministry after he's gone. And now there's very little time left. Again, by the time he enters Jerusalem, there's just a week before the cross. And then the 40 days after his resurrection, then he ascends. Very, very little time left. So Jesus is once again instructing the disciples, preparing them to continue the mission. This incident is, is recorded in, in more detail in Matthew 20, uh, 18 and 19, and Mark 10, 33 and 34. And it, it's properly understood that this is actually the third time in Luke's gospel account that Jesus is prophesying his suffering his death. But, but this is actually the seventh time that Jesus is, is prophesying. Now, now, granted, those are more those other two that are referred to are, are more explicit. They're in in uh, chapter 9, just, just prior to beginning this, this journey towards Jerusalem. And, and apart from, from the most explicit of all, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, this is the last such prophecy that's recorded in Luke. Yet as, as Jesus continues his ministry over in Jerusalem over his last week, he's, he's going to pack his ministry with, with illusions and pictures of his death. So Jesus continues here. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, while, while much of his focus on the, the next two verses is on the sufferings of Christ and the fulfillment of his priestly office, his office as king is in view here as well. And in this, everything will be accomplished. Everything must be accomplished. Now, we looked at, at the, the title the Son of Man, re repeatedly, and, and people often assume that by Son of Man, it's referring primarily to, to his humanity, but when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, it's actually most often considered to be speaking of his kingship. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man 25 times in Luke's Gospel account. And this context the immediate context is actually referring to his suffering, but also, as we'll see, to his kingship as well. So taking together, Jesus is, is placing his suffering alongside his future reign. He's placing his suffering alongside his future reign. Now, it's really important for you to understand what, what all of this tells us about Christ's role as prophet. He teaches us what we need to know about God and what we need to know about ourselves. Here, Mark Jones. Because he's the God-man, Christ enables revelation to be communicated from God to humanity. And as a prophet, he mediates revelation from God to man in both states, even to eternity. So Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy back in Deuteronomy 18.15, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. 
But that's not all. Christ is also the Logos, the Word of God incarnate. Now, John 1 is, is very important here in this. Let's, let's just turn there briefly together. In John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, and then verse 14. And the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. So John is saying there that as the prophet sent by God, Jesus is actually imaging God. He's the, the representation of God. He is, he is actually God in the flesh. He's the word incarnate. So usually with a prophet, God tells the words to the prophet, but Jesus is the word. He is the word incarnate. And so as the prophet sent by God, the whole Bible is about Christ. He has learned this from his own personal study from the scriptures and has been directly revealed to him via the Holy Spirit. The whole Bible is about Christ and his work. Christ is there working in creation, in the creation account. Salvation through Christ, Christ is promised in Genesis 3.15, right after the first sin, where the, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head and he will have his heel bruised in the process. The ceremonial, moral, and civil law point to Christ. The covenants point to Christ. The sacrifices point to Christ, as we'll see in a moment. The Davidic kingship points to Christ. We'll see that too. The Psalms point to Christ. The prophets point to Christ. And so when Jesus says here and refers to the prophets in, in Luke 18, he isn't just speaking about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and Malachi, the major and minor prophets. He's speaking about also Moses and David and Samuel and the writer of Job. He's speaking here of the writers of the Old Testament. He's speaking of the, history, of the history in the scriptures, the Psalms, the, the Proverbs, as well as prophecy. And so then Christ reveals our salvation in himself. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired diligently, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Again, from Mark Jones. In the Old Testament, the divine Son reveals His will by His divine nature, for He's not yet incarnate. But in the Gospel age, after taking on human flesh, He teaches as the prophet sent by God. So brothers and sisters, as you read your Bible, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. As you read your Bible, keep your eyes on Christ. Jesus, Jesus didn't just teach these things in his prophetic office. He experienced these things. He fulfilled these things. He is these things. So then to sum up our focus on, on Christ's prophetic office, let's just look at question 27 of the Baptist Catechism. 
Question, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer, Christ executed the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. So that in his prophetic office, Christ not only prophesies what's going to take place, but also teaches the truths of God's word. He is the fulfillment of everything written in the Bible. So that's Christ, our prophet. Now let's consider Christ, our, our priest. You understand that, that God is holy and we are sinful. The rich young ruler tried and failed to establish his own righteousness by works. The Pharisees tried the same thing. In fact, ever since the fall, people have been trying to deny their guilt and to establish their own righteousness. But the reality is our sins have separated us from God and we need a mediator to stand between us and God. A mediator to reconcile us to God and to make us acceptable in his sight. In the words of the 1689 London Baptist Confession, because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and to present us to God as acceptable. We need a priest to stand between us and God. And that priest could be none less than Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man. He would suffer and die in our place, and he continues to intercede for us before the throne of God. So in verses 32 and 33, Jesus describes his coming suffering. He describes it explicitly. Jesus is prophesying here that, that he's going to be delivered to the Gentiles. He's going to be handed over by the Jews to the Romans. He's going to be mocked and he's going to be shamefully treated. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be whipped by a soldier who, is, who has a whip that, that is, has bits of metal and bone and glass attached to the end, who's specially trained to, to flay flesh. And he's going to be nailed to a cross. He's going to be crucified for your sins and for mine. Now this is prophetic in the sense that it hasn't yet taken place when Jesus teaches his disciples. this. But it's also prophetic in the sense that this is a direct communication from God to his people. And every element of this is, is prophesied clearly in the Old Testament. Again, Genesis 3.15, with the first promise of the gospel, the seed of the woman crushes the serpent's head and has his heel bruised. The promise of the gospel. And then with their, their hearts and their, their bodies exposed, Adam and Eve had tried to, to cover themselves with fig leaves. But in Genesis 3.21, God kills an animal and clothes them with skins to cover their nakedness. This is the first sacrifice. The sacrifices are repeated with, with Abel, the first martyr, who also points to Christ, and Noah, and Abraham, and his progeny. But it is with Moses that the priesthood is established, with Aaron, his brother, as the first high priest. And so this, this priesthood is, is typical. It's, it's a type 
that points to the priesthood of Jesus Christ, our high priest. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now this is word propitiation, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a dense theological word, but it's an important word. Propitiation essentially means a sacrifice that turns away wrath. So Jesus Christ then fulfills all of the priesthood. He fulfills the, the priesthood itself. He fulfills all of the, the furnishings of the tabernacle later of the temple. He fulfills the, the sacrifice he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He fulfills all of the priesthood. So then with the priesthood comes the sacrificial system of the slaughter of animals, the tabernacle, and then the temple. Once a year, remember, the, the high priest would, would enter into the, the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice, and he would, would sprinkle the blood on, on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. As, as a picture of the coming sacrifice. This sacrifice was powerless in of itself, but it's, it's in its object and what it points to, the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons and the ashes with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I trust you all know Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As a priest went into the Holy of Holies, he bore the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on the, the breastpiece right next to his heart. And in his office as high priest, Jesus Christ continues to make intercession for us. He continues to make priestly intercession. Again, from Hebrews chapter 2, 24 and 25, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Brothers and sisters, even now, the Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven is interceding for you before Almighty God. So then the priesthood, the tabernacles, furnishing sacrifices, all point to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in his priesthood and his atoning blood. Christ's priestly sacrifice is also depicted in the Psalms. Let's just drill down here for a moment. I'd, Years ago, I was asked to officiate a funeral of an unbeliever, a person at least had at all appearances of being an unbeliever, by unbelieving family members. Now, I've said this before, but, but as, as sad as the funeral of an unbeliever is, I actually prefer doing funerals to weddings. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I love weddings. I, I love all that, that I love marriage and, and all that it entails. But people aren't listening to me when I'm preaching at a wedding. They're thinking how beautiful the bride looks and the flowers. And they're not listening to me. But at a funeral, 
everybody's keyed in because they're thinking about mortality. They're thinking about the mortality of the person who at least used to be laid out in front of them. They're thinking about their own mentality. So people are listening at funerals. I like preaching at funerals. As they met with the family in the lead up to this, they said, well, that they wanted Psalm 23 in the service. Now, many people want Psalm 23 at a funeral. Even unbelievers want Psalm 23. So as I was considering what to preach on, I thought, you know what? I'm going to preach on Psalm 23. I'm going to talk about what Psalm 23 really means. I'm going to introduce people to the good shepherd of Psalm 23. And so I, I walked through Psalm 23, and I said, if, if you want to know the good shepherd of Psalm 23, you need to flip back one. You need to look at Psalm 22. Because Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So let's just look then for a moment at Psalm 22. Again, there's, there's, I could go all over the place in the Psalms to, to, to talk about these things, but, but certainly one of the crowning Psalms, and one of the crowning Messianic Psalms is Psalm 22. Look at the verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you were all familiar with the Gospels, you know what, you know who said that, right? These are the last words of our Lord and Savior as he gave up his life on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the, the Father poured out his wrath on his Son. and said, into your hands I commit my spirit. He goes on to say that I'm, in verse 6, that I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him from the, he who delights in him. Does this sound familiar? This is all in the Gospels. I'm poured out like water, verse 14. My bones are out of a joint. My heart's like wax. Dogs encompass me, Gentile dogs. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They stare and gloat. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Remember, this was written by David somewhere around 1000 BC, a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And Jesus Christ fulfills this psalm. Not only do you have the, the clearly messianic psalms that point to a sacrifice, but, but it's the fulfillment of the, the suffering and the rejection of, of so many of the psalms. And I really would encourage you to, to make the psalms a, a regular part of, of your diet of the Word of God. And we talk about this often, but whatever you're going through in life, there's a psalm for that. If you are struggling, if you're being mistreated by others and, and you're going through, through great challenges, you, you can read the Psalms, as, and even as many, well, half of them written by King David, experience these things, but, but they all ultimately point to Jesus Christ and, and his deprivations and his sufferings that he lived out for his people. So again, these not just the Messianic Psalms, but you also have the enthronement Psalms, like Psalm 110 that we're going to look at shortly that all point to Christ in the threefold office. The priesthood of Christ is, is there, again, throughout the prophets. 
Just, just one prophet as an example, Isaiah. Not only is Christ the clear fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Isaiah 9:6, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Not only do we have these clear prophecies of Jesus in Isaiah, but the servant songs later in Isaiah are clearly about the suffering of the Messiah. Let's turn to Isaiah 53 that, that Pastor Joshua read for us earlier. Again, just quickly, I'll look at a couple of verses. Again, the whole thing is about Jesus, the suffering. But Isaiah 53 really starts in 52.13, but Isaiah 53.4, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is Christ's priestly ministry. Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put his soul to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is all the priestly office of Christ. With a hint of the kingship as well. But again, remember that the, this was written by Isaiah around 700 B.C. This is not a matter of uh, people going back and saying, oh, I better, let's write this stuff into, the, into Isaiah and into the Psalms just so we, we can have something to justify our Christian faith. No, this is Jesus Christ knowing, consciously, intentionally, fulfilling all of these things, fulfilling his office for our salvation. The only way that we can enter the kingdom is through Christ. And it's threefold office. Again, to sum up, let's just look at one question from the Baptist Catechism. Question 28. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ's answer, Christ executes the office of a priest and is once offering up himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. So then, in, in this office as priest, Christ makes atonement for our sins reconciling us to God, and then he continues to intercede for us before God. So let's now consider the third and final office, Christ our King. A little briefer this time. Here we're going to start by, by looking at the title that Jesus applies to himself in verse 31 as the Son of Man. In fact, again, the Son of Man is the, the most common way that Jesus refers to himself. And I've explained earlier in Luke that, that Son of Man is a title that Jesus gives to himself and is a reference to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man is the, the heavenly figure who ascends to the throne of the Ancient of Days and triumphs with the saints of the Most High God. The term is used again in Revelation 
14, where the Son of Man has a crown on his head to rule and a sickle in his hand to reap. And so the title then refers not just to Christ's humanity, but to his exaltation, to his glorification, to his enthronement. It refers to Christ's kingly office. And now jump to the end of verse 33. Where Jesus says, on the third day, he will rise. On the third day, he will rise. The death of Christ was not the end. Christ rose from the grave, accomplishing victory for us. Again, from the, the 689 London Baptist Confession. Because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God so that we can be rescued and made secure from our spiritual enemies, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. So here we see in the resurrection that Christ won the victory over sin and death, over hell and Satan. He won the victory for us over our chief enemies. Now there are several of the Psalms, again I mentioned earlier, the, the enthronement Psalms that are fulfilled in Christ. Notably Psalms 96 through 99. But one of the greatest Enthronement Psalms is Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is quoted 22 times in the New Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Later on, we're going to see in Luke 20 verses 41 to 44 how Jesus applies this Psalm 110 to himself. He says to the Pharisees that since David calls the Christ Lord... How can he be his son? Christ is a descendant of David according to the flesh. The Pharisees didn't get that. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David makes plans to build a house for God. He plans to make a temple. And if you remember, Nathan the prophet says to him, says to him, go and do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But then God speaks to Nathan and says, no, tell, tell David that he's not going to build me a house. I'm going to build him a house. It's going to be a house that lasts forever. For I will give you rest from all your enemies. More the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And so Christ, as David's greater son, is the Davidic king of the, of the covenant that God has made with David. Then when we get to the New Testament, twice, with an audible voice, God publicly declares the kingly authority of Christ. First at his baptism, which we saw in Luke 3, 22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then we saw in Luke 9, 35, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Again, the, the rule and reign of Christ is being, is being established, is being proclaimed by the voice of God. So then in his office as king, Christ subdues us and reigns over us. Yet he also defends us. 
So in conquering his own enemies, Christ is overcoming and has conquered our enemies. He set us free from slavery to sin and Satan so that we are now free to serve him. As we saw this in the prophecy of, of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, back in Luke 1, 74 and 75, that we being delivered from the, from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So then after Christ's humiliation, God exalts him again on high. We all know Philippians 2, where we're told to have the same mind as Christ, who, who humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, and humbled himself even to the point of, of death on the cross. Therefore, verses 9 to 11 read, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this enthronement of Christ is eternal. It's going to continue even at his return and, and forever and ever. And at this particular time, right now, Christ rules the church according to his divine law. You can see this clearly in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, where Jesus expounds on the law, correcting the wrong teaching of the Pharisees and showing, that, showing what God's law really entails. We know that, that Christ is ruling and reigning even now, that he is on the throne in heaven. This kingdom has been inaugurated with the incarnation and the kingdom will be fulfilled at his return. And one day, the whole world will see the rule and reign of Christ. And until that day, we reveal the rule and reign of Christ in our lives as individual Christians and as the church. So then, Baptist Catechism, question 29. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies throughout. So in this passage, Christ has summarized his threefold office in just three verses. But it's not just here. Christ has been revealing it throughout his ministry. In fact, it's been revealed throughout the scriptures. So how do the disciples respond? With this, this information, again, it, it, it wasn't new to them. They'd heard it repeatedly. But how did they respond this time? Only Luke actually tells us. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Luke is telling us the response of the disciples three times in three different ways to underscore their failure to understand. Now let's not be too hard on the disciples. After all, we fail to understand. Even though we live after the events that took place. Remember, this is before the crucifixion. 
And the, the disciples, it's, it's not that what, what Jesus was saying was, was incomprehensible, but they didn't understand how the, the suffering and death of Christ fit in with, with, the, with his ruling and reigning as the Messiah. You see, they, like, like much of Israel, was, they were looking to, to one part of the prophecy in the Old Testament of the, the coming Messiah who was going to conquer Israel's enemies, and they looked at this in a, in a naturalistic way, that, that God was going to, to, through the Messiah, was going to get rid of the, of the Romans. But they didn't understand the, the, the rest of the prophecies about the, the suffering of Christ. And, and again, that's, they're both there in the Old Testament, but they'd, they'd chosen to focus on one aspect and had ignored the other, or radically misunderstood the other. So they failed to understand. Now we also need to remember that this is prior to their, their being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who enables you to see and to, to understand these things and to, to believe and to, to apprehend them. After the resurrection in, in Luke 24, 27, and Jesus is risen from the grave, but the disciples had not yet seen him. Only, only a few of them had. And remember, two disciples are, are on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus walks up to them and says, what are you guys talking about? They say, well, haven't you heard what's happened in Jerusalem? They're saying that they didn't understand. So what does Jesus do? Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus here, continuing in his office of prophet, now expounded upon these things to these disciples. The other day, a friend asked a question on Facebook. He said, out of all the events of the scriptures, if you could personally witness one of them, which would it be? And I said, well, maybe being a little bit cheeky, but it's, it's, it's true. If I could witness any one of the events in the scriptures, I would want to witness the parousia, the return of Christ. That's not what he was getting at. That's number one. But I think this message that Jesus preached to his disciples, to his disciples, would have been up there for me near the top of my list. I would have loved to have just listened in to what Jesus was teaching here as, as, he, as he expounded to these disciples how Moses and all the prophets pointed to him. Well, Christ continued to be a prophet after the resurrection. You see in Luke 24. He continues to be a priest after the ascension. Because he, because he is interceding for the saints, and remember, he interceded for them that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and then, and then we finally we see in, in Acts chapter two. Let's turn there for a minute, please. Acts twenty, Acts chapter two, verses twenty-two and following. Peter's sermon after Pentecost, after the giving of the Holy Spirit. He says, "Men of Israel, hear these words." This is remember, this is Peter who had been cowering before a slave girl. This 40 days before. 
Now he's saying, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the same Peter who cowered before a slave girl, the same Peter who did not understand what Jesus was talking about, now understood. The Holy Spirit had, been reve had revealed to him the fullness. The teaching of Jesus through those 40 days had revealed to him the fullness of who he is and what he came to do. And he is still... Revealing the Lord, Lord Jesus still continues to intercede for the saints before the throne of God, especially that you will know who he is and you will worship him for who he is. And so he continues to be a prophet, continues to be a priest, and he continues to be a king. He is reigning now and he will reign forever. And so to enter the kingdom, you must enter through Christ. You must believe Christ as the prophet. You must receive Christ as priest. You must submit to Christ as priest. Sorry, as king. And my prayer for you is that you will understand. Again, you have the privilege of, of living after these events, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after the, the birth and the spread of the church. Do you understand who Christ is as prophet, priest, and king? Is he your prophet, priest, and king? Psalm 75 speaks of the, the cup of wrath that we poured out on those who continue to rebel against God. As you begin to prepare your hearts for the Lord's Supper, Consider that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for you and for me. And as Milton Vincent talks about in the Gospel Primer, if, if we were to receive even an empty cup from God, we would be most blessed considering what we actually deserve. But Christ does not just give us an empty cup. Through his threefold office, he gives us a cup overflowing with blessings from God. This is the treasure. Christ is the treasure for all who believe in him, who receive him, and submit to him as prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for Christ. For who he is and all that he came to do to accomplish salvation for your elect. For the glory of your name. And Lord, we pray that, that you would continue to enlighten these truths to our hearts and to our minds through the power of your Holy Spirit that we will grow in our understanding and our worship and our love for Christ. Lord, that we'll grow in the understanding of, of what he teaches us as prophet and 
all that he's accomplished for us as priest and his glorious reign over us as king. Help us to believe these things and to receive these things and to walk in these things for the glory of your name and for the building of your church. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.